I'm Aria Schwartz along with Rachel Galligan, and welcome to the Windsider Show, where it's all about the W. Today, our guest has his hands full, just two days away from the WNBA draft. We are joined by Dallas Wings GM Greg Bibb. He holds not just the number one and two pick in this upcoming draft, but also number five and number seven in the first round alone. like our show please consider joining our patreon community patreon.com backslash windsider for less than a cup of coffee a month you can directly show support for the hard work we do covering the w and don't forget to see our staff's amazing written content over at windsider.com while you're over there check out our overseas tracker it's live now and you can see where your favorite WNBA players are playing overseas all in one place also it's still the off season make sure you keep up to date with all free agency moves with our free agency tracker on Winsider.com. So excited for this episode and to be welcoming Greg Bibb, the Dallas Wings GM to the show. Greg, thank you so much for making the time for us in this very, very busy week. Welcome to the show. And I have to ask, when was the last time you slept? Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, it def- depends how you define sleep. Uh, <laughs> laying down in a bed just last night. Sleep, harder question to answer. <laughs> fair very fair yeah i mean i've been starting to have dreams about the WNBA draft i can't imagine uh how it's going for you guys in the gm position but the WNBA schedules were just released earlier today and i'm curious your initial thoughts um and i know the fans are clamoring about this we're well aware of a lot of the background work that goes into it but i think a lot of the fans are curious why it took so long so if you could just give us a little light into your initial thoughts on the schedule and why it took so long well i would i would first start by saying i think the league has done a tremendous job in terms of getting us to the point where we have a 32 game schedule and we're all playing in our own markets no you know as much as the world has changed since last summer many of the same challenges exist particularly in some of the markets around the country so the fact that we're able to clear all of these dates league wide and have a plan to play in our own market, I think, is a is a tremendous uh, job done by the league. Um, that said, when when you're putting a schedule together, you're threading a lot of different needles. You're threading a needle around a particular market's arena availability. You're threading a needle around travel issues. Um, you're threading a needle now in terms of the protocol differences. What is what are the rules in some states are vastly different than others. And then obviously um, there's the threading of the needle on broadcast, both local and national. So there's a lot of different balls in the air, um, pieces to the puzzle that need to be uh, aligned. And, um, you know, we had to wait uh, until we know, knew it was a reality that we'd be able to pull this off. And it's also the consideration of, you know, waiting as long as you can, um, to ensure that um, the operation in a given market will be as easy as possible, i.e. conditions have improved, protocols, rules have lessened, but at the same time not waiting so long that you can't give the teams and the fans an opportunity to react. And I think 
where we are right now, listen, would we have loved to have the schedule earlier? Of course we would have. Everyone would have. But based on the reality of the world today, I think the league did a heck of a job in getting it out. Yeah, I, I have to echo you with that one. I mean, when you really sit back and think about the complexities of this and where the, you know, the 12 markets we're trying to work with and just the, the different landscape and all those different markets, I mean, it's vastly different in Texas than it is in New York. And how does that look? And, and we obviously don't have to talk about the travel aspect of it, but um, just really impressed that it was able to be pulled off. I'm very excited that you guys don't have to bubble again and, and that this is going to be um, somewhat a little more normal than what they're used to. And, and kind of with that, I mean, um, Kathy Engelbart talked about nine out of the 12 teams are expected to have fans this season, uh, maybe not at full capacity, but what does that look like in Dallas, in your market? How are you feeling about the potential of having fans back in the stands? Really excited for our fans to have the opportunity to see our team. If you think about last year and what we're going to go through here in a couple of days, which I'm sure you probably want to talk a little bit about, um, our team will be dramatically different when it steps on the College Park uh, center court for the first time compared to the team that walked off the court for the last time in September of 19. So this is really a reintroduction of our team in many ways to our fan base, and it's been too long, and I'm excited to get back in College Park Center um, and have fans there to enjoy Dallas Wings basketball. Well, we're going to get to the uh, excitement of this roster, um, but we're less than 48 hours away, or we're at 50 hours away, I think, right now as we record this from the WNBA Draft 2021. How are you feeling leading up to this, you know, very, very, I mean, look, this is our second virtual draft, right? But it's still a very different draft than it was last year and the year before it, and the 24 years before this one. So how are you feeling? So this is part two, really, of a two-year strategy, and hopefully the sequel is as good as the original in our case. Um, that really was four-ish years in the making in which we had a pivot to our strategy on our roster that was originally constructed around two superstar players. Uh, we pivoted from that strategy, um, and I made some decisions um, that rather than trade valuable players away for known entities that I would know instantly were not of equal value coming back to become a speculator and try to aggregate as many draft picks over the course of a couple years as possible. And that's what we did last year. And that's what we're doing this year. You know, it's a, it's a young sample size an early sample size, but I feel very good about uh, what were we able to do last year in our first round when you think about Satu Sabali and Bella Allery and Ty Harris. And if we can replicate that kind of success uh, here in a couple of days, then I think we have a very good, very talented young core group to join the Arikes and the Alicias and the KTs, Kayla Thorntons of our existing roster and our window will not only be opening in terms of potential for success, but it's a window based on age of core roster and based on our salary cap position go forward, that that window should be able to stay open for a relatively long amount of time. You know, Greg, I, I want to ask, um, you know, that obviously this has been a very challenging year for, for coaches and GMs, probably not able to actually be physically at games um, as you typically would would have. 
um, being able to kind of scout talent and, and check out this draft class. A lot of that being done, I'm sure, at home, uh, maybe potentially made the NCAA tournament. The NCAA tournament in, in particular, you know, has been a really hot topic of discussion with some of these specific players. We won't we won't get into specifics because I know you, you necessarily can't, but how much stock do you put into uh, a player's performance in the NCAA tournament? I think this is an interesting um, I guess I like analyzing it because, you know, you're on the highest stage, you're going against the top, the top competition, all the pressure is on the line. Do you put a ton of stock into a particular player's performance in the tournament, or do you kind of look at the entire body of work? I think you always want to find players who play their best games in their biggest games. That said, you know, our process is, is not only multiple game in terms of length of process, it's multiple years. I mean, many of the players that will be on the draft board in two days, we've been scouting for a minimum of three years, if not four, if not beyond their college years. So um, no one game sways a decision uh, in my mind in terms of how we feel about a potential draft pick. But certainly, again, you like to see those players step up in the biggest moments and produce uh, in a big way. And in terms of the NCAA tournament, we were fortunate in that here in Texas, we we were able to see the NCAA tournament right. because it was held exclusively in the San Antonio region. So we, we were fortunate in that regard this year. So unique year um, with the NCAA granting um, that, that fifth year to really any anyone um, who was competing, not as many players are available to kind of select from. Um, and that, that's been completely uni- unique, unprecedented from what we've seen before. Um, you know, just the number of players you get to pick from and how does that really translate to maybe international talent. But, you know, on the flip side, you've got – a smaller pool to pick from, but I'm curious with you, and I guess I'm giving you a roundabout question. What is the lasting, it's a two-part question. I'll ask the second part once you're done, but what's the lasting effect with that aspect of it? You know, how has that fifth year impacted your ability to do your job with this? I think there was a little uncertainty, you know, maybe a month or two months ago, but for the most part, as I thought would happen, the players that you have an interest in and are, you know, more of a sure bet in terms of being in the WNBA. Um, as far as I know, all of them um, opted in. Um, and I think the final list was around 50-ish in terms of opt-ins, and that excludes the international players who didn't have to do so. So the draft is 36 picks. So there are more than enough players for the draft. And again, I think the players that most of the teams are interested in probably are part of the draft process this year. Well, and on the flip side, I mean, we always talk about 144 players in the league, but we all know that not every team is going to be able to carry 12. It's, it's going to be well below that. And that's a question I want to have for you. I mean, I look at some of these players who've decided to opt in for the WNBA draft, and, and you've got to sit back and think, man, there's going to be people in the first round, maybe late first round, that, that arguably don't make a WNBA roster. What do you have to say just about that topic? And literally, it's, it's less than 144 players making a roster at this point. Yeah, listen, this is the best women's professional basketball league in the world. An unfortunate side effect of that fact is that it is really hard to make a roster. And you're right. Uh, 
the textbook tells you there are 144 spots, but the reality tells you it's less than that because there are teams in the new salary cap era uh, who make the decision strategically to carry less. Uh, most of the time that's 11, but once in a while that's even 10. Um, so it's not 144. My guess is it's probably somewhere between 137, 38, and 140, 141. Um, and, you know, obviously there are a lot of players that are going to be on those rosters when the draft picks show up and are going to be on those rosters moving forward. So the number of available spots is a very limited number, and it's inevitable that there are players every year um, that get cut that clearly have the talent to play in the league. Um, it's just an unfortunate side effect of the um, exclusivity and talent level that our game um, possesses. Yeah, well, another big topic that's been talked huge amounts about uh, all over social media is the one and done, or in other words, a freshman's ability to enter the draft right now in the WNBA that is not possible. It's against the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement. And I think Sue Bird had a really interesting aspect that I kind of want to ask you about because you are a GM. Sue Bird reflected on it saying, to me, a first round pick or the number one pick is an investment. And if you see that in that player, then if, you know, whether it's a freshman or whoever, and and I would even say that, you know, the job of a GM or the coach is to put the best product on the court is, is to compile the best roster possible. So I'm curious for you as somebody who actually sits in the position, as opposed to us who kind of are just talking heads from the outside, there's obviously uh, uh, many elements to it, but what are your feelings on the, uh, the ability or, you know, the idea of kind of opening it, not just to seniors, but also to freshmen, sophomores, and possibly juniors. Yeah, to be completely candid, I have mixed feelings on it currently, and I haven't really reached a final conclusion in my mind. On one hand, I, I believe that the best players should play in the best league, regardless of circumstance. So that would obviously favor giving underclassmen an opportunity. But on the other hand, per what we just discussed, there it is so hard to make our league. Right. And there are players every year that plan to play in the league um, and they don't they don't make it. And by opening the door for additional players who are younger, uh, I think you just increase that number and you increase the risk of a player who maybe develops over the next couple of years and makes that roster um, to to have the unfortunate um, circumstance of of not making it if they come out early. So um, I'm mixed on it right now. I haven't really reached a final conclusion in my head. I see both sides of that issue and, it, and it's a tough issue. But I think when you step back and you look at it, I think it's another anecdotal sign of the growth of our game where we're having these discussions now. You know, in 15 years have I been associated with the league, it just doesn't feel like those kinds of discussions were being had before. And I feel like it's just this... Um, result of the game growing, the awareness around the game growing, the conversation around the game growing, um, and the talent in the game growing. I mean, I'll be honest, kids that are freshmen and sophomores today, I don't recall seeing a lot of those kids as freshmen and sophomore five, 10 years ago. I think the talent in the women's game continues to evolve and evolve at a, a breakneck pace. Uh, and I think that's ultimately good for our game. Well, I, I completely agree, and I appreciate your candidness, and this is the perfect segue for, I'm very curious from somebody who, like, one of the key elements of your job is to, you know, analyze and evaluate these college-level players. How do you feel the college level is preparing players for the pros these days? I, I, it sounds like you feel like it's gotten better, but has it possibly gotten worse to a degree? 
I mean, what are your thoughts? I think it's gotten better because I think the focus um, for a lot of the athletes when they arrive at school now is with an awareness of the WNBA as a possibility. And I'm talking obviously about the higher end player now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we've seen an evolution in that regard too, in terms of the growth of the game. And I think one of the big challenges we had uh, in the past, you know, a lot of our, our women's basketball players grew up um, with male role models and male idols in the game. And I think as the league has matured and we get ready to play season 25, we're now aging into a group of collegiate athletes that have grown up in an era where they only knew of a world with WNBA basketball. And I think therefore um, their aspirations and their focus um, in terms of the evolution of their own game has been more centered on the WNBA. So um, I think that has played a part in driving um, the improved connectivity between the college game and the pro game. And I think also too, at the coaching level at the college game, I think the coaches have, you know, started to understand the value, um, that the W can play for their program, specifically the value of a player being drafted out of the program into the WNBA and how that can help them, um, with their own, their own causes. So I think it can always be better, but I think it's getting better every day. Yeah, I and I have to agree with that and also say, I mean, seeing the, you talked about coaches, seeing so many former WNBA coaches get in, or sorry, former WNBA players get into coaching positions across the NCAA definitely has had a hand in that. Well, let's let's get focused on this draft, but I, I think we have to view it as you were talking about. It wasn't just like a single year plan that you've had for last year's draft or this year's draft. And last year, you were one of the most young, exciting teams in the league. With the emergence of so many young stars on your roster, and I would just exhaust myself listing them, with that being said, like, what's the team's mentality surrounding the organization, taking that step from being the youths in the league to competing of a, like, with an experienced, talented team? Yeah, I think, obviously, we're going to add you know, a multiple of players that are going to be rookies this year to a group of second year players. Um, so by that definition, we're going to be young again, but I don't think we're as young as we've been in the recent past. You think about Arike entering her third year as the defending scoring champion, Alicia Gray in year five, Gail Thornton in year five or six, Isabel Harrison in year six, I believe we're young, but we're not as young as we've been. Um, and one of the the mantras that I have for organization top to bottom this year is I don't want our youth to be a crutch any longer. And I was as guilty of this as anyone last year. I spent a lot of time on shows like this talking about how painfully young we were going to be and, you know, the challenges that created. And that was all true. But somewhere along the way last year, I just felt like it kind of became a crutch for us. And I think there were other teams as young or very close to being as young as us last year who had a lot of success made the playoffs. And Minnesota is probably the example that comes to mind the easiest for me. If you look at that roster, where they were in terms of players available to them um, by the season that ended last year, um, they weren't too far off from us in terms of youth and and they figured out a way to be successful and win. So I think with another year collectively under our belts, um, my hope is that that is less of a focus externally and internally and we no longer look to that as to be the reason why we're not successful if we are in fact not successful 
All right, so you've got picks one, two, five, and seven. I would be avoiding the elephant in the room <laughs> if I wouldn't just be saying that everyone's eyes are clearly very much focused on uh, the Dallas Wings and, and kind of the moves you're going to make and, and really what your plans are going to do are going to be with this draft. Um, obviously, you can't you're not going to share that with us, but I have to imagine from a planning standpoint, this has got to be extremely challenging. I mean. You control one and one and two as of now. Things could change between from where this is airing today on Tuesday and actual draft night on Thursday. But how are you approaching this from a, a planning standpoint? We have 10 players under contract and you're allowed to have 15 in camp and we have five picks. So we can utilize every one of our picks and bring them into camp and have competition. And I'm old school, but I think competition's good. Um, and if we get to the point where we do, in fact, use all of our picks and we do have competition in a couple spots, we will exit camp a better team than we entered camp. So uh, by no means am I saying we're going to use them all, not use them all, but we have the room based on our roster to bring in each and every one of our picks this year, should we choose to do so. Uh, and I also think, aside from that, uh, it's a good problem to have when you have too many good players. Uh, it's far less desirable to not have enough good players. So if, in fact, we use all, all five and we end up at 15, um, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, and I'm confident we'll benefit from it. But we have some time between now and the draft, and we have some time between the draft and camp, and certainly between the start of camp and the end of the camp to ultimately get to the 12 that we need to be at at the start of the season. Well, we very much appreciate you clarifying that for us. Um, and, you know, Look, when, when we talk about draft uh, and, and the fans put on their draft caps, everyone thinks, you know, it's it's either the draft goes as normal or every mock draft is blown up, which, you know, hey, it could happen any year. Lots of trades can happen. Things like that can happen. I'm curious for you, having so much equity in the first round, are you how do you approach it in regards to hearing from other teams or reaching out to other teams? You know, is is your mentality, I'll sit back because I'm in the position of power and let people come to me? Or is it kind of, let me put out some feelers so I can have a full understanding of the playing field that we're entering? Yeah, I always approach it. It can always be better. Um, even this year with one and two, you know, we have five, seven, 13. Unless we were one through five, I can do better in terms of our positioning in the draft. If you're looking at just through the lens of the draft, and then you have to consider, mm -hmm. obviously, the draft is an interface with your roster and potential trades, et cetera. So there's an, always an opportunity to explore possibilities, to have conversations and try to improve your position, whether that's with actual picks or utilizing picks to make deals. Um, so it, it, it's never a situation where you can just say, okay, I've secured my five picks. I feel good about it. Let's sit back and wait for Thursday to get here. Uh, that would be a disservice to the job. Um, and you can always do better. I want to ask you real quick, what's your overall perspective of this draft class? I mean, it, it's vastly different for so many reasons. We already talked about the, the, the limited number, uh, but just kind of, you know, what's your thoughts of this overall class? I mean, some years we talk about being very point guard heavy. Sometimes some years we talk about being very, you know, international heavy. Um, what, what, what are your just general opinions of this class and, and honestly just the strengths of it? Well, I, I've bet a lot on it, so I, I probably have a, a, a better feeling about it than most. Um, <laughs> is, there a, is there a generational type lock 
kind of superstar player that you can pencil in to take your franchise to to higher ground for the next decade? I don't know about that. But do I think it's a pretty deep draft? I do. And I think what's exciting for fans and for a lot of the teams in the draft, um, the groupings of players aren't as distinct as they typically are. So I never really slot players into a specific number as I prepare. I tend to do groupings of players, like here's the top group, which could fall in the first couple picks and here's the next group, et cetera, et cetera. And the lines between those groups are a little blurrier than usual. Um, and in effect, you could actually say the groupings are bigger than usual. So I think there's a real chance someone's going to steal a player or two out of this draft when we look back five years from now and say, wow, what a value pick that was. And then hopefully for someone like me who happens to have the top two picks, if I stay there, we don't look back and say, wow, what a miss those were. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting draft in terms of the intrigue uh, because I think the lines are blurred a little bit more than they usually are around how you group players. You know, it was really interesting hearing you say that as hard as regards to how you group players, because you sound like me with power rankings. I, I have to put them into tiers. I can't do actual numbers because sometimes it just gets a little bit too complicated. Um, but I'm, I'm curious for you. You've done a virtual draft before. This isn't your first time. What's your war room setup and kind of has it changed from last year? Did you figure out some things didn't work very well? You're going to adjust that. I know uh, Coach Johnson, Coach Vicky Johnson. Uh, is based in Texas these days, um, so maybe that makes your life a little bit easier. But I, I'm just curious for you, what's your what's your war room setup, and what have you learned from last year to this year? Yeah, so last year was unique. We we were working from home um, for the draft, so I had a setup in my home office, um, and because of that, the number of devices necessary to stay connected with the draft and the official phone lines into the league and communication with each of the staff who participate in our process, I was on all of my devices, had borrowed my wife's devices, borrowed my daughter's devices, and borrowed my son's devices. And this is an absolute 100% true story. I'm trying to have a conversation in the midst of making a pick, and my daughter's TikTok went off. Uh, so as I'm trying to make a decision, um, TikTok is playing in the background. So the good news is I learned about TikTok inadvertently, and I'm a hipper dad now for it. Um, but the bad news was last year logistically was a unique and unprecedented set of challenges. This year, a little better. Uh, we'll operate our war room out of our office here in Arlington, Texas. Um, and while we'll be socially distanced and wearing our mask and following all the protocols to remain safe, uh, we will be together in one location in terms of a staff. So the communication uh, up to the draft and certainly during the draft as decisions are made and pivots are made on the fly will be much easier. Well, Greg, we, we certainly wish you a ton of luck as we uh, as you head into the rest of this week. And again, we, we know how busy, well, we, we don't know, but we can only assume how busy you must be with these top four picks. But before we let you go, I, I would be, uh, it would be wrong of us to not bring up the jerseys. Uh, those were released, what is it, this week, earlier this week, late, late last week. Um, huge, huge amount of momentum. I mean, just surrounding the league in general, but in particular around these jerseys. We talk about the Rebel editions and how unique those have been. I mean, I just think that everything was done extremely well. The attention to detail was phenomenal. I just want to ask you, what was the process like with these jerseys? Do you have a personal favorite? Well, again, you know, tip of the hat to the league and to our partners at Nike. There was a tremendous amount of effort, time, resources, money that went into this process and Again, to me, it's another um, 
data point that shows the growth of our game. Um, the, the fact that the global leader in Nike decided that they were going to elevate the launch of the uniform systems for all 12 teams for sure. and put the effort behind it that they did um, shows that the game is growing because candidly in a business environment, that wouldn't happen unless they believed in right. the return on that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's coming, it's, it's here in many ways, it's undeniable, but in terms of the uniforms themselves, you know, I think they're all great. I love the rebel and, and the story that each team's rebel Jersey tells. Yeah. And I think overall aesthetically, it's just another level in terms of the quality of the design. And I'll tell you too, the quality of the actual Jersey and short and uniform material is significantly better than what we've had in the past. So from a functionality standpoint, um, it, it's a next level kind of effort and output. So uh, really excited about um, our uniform identity, really excited about what I've seen from around the league, and re- I'm really proud of the work the league and the Nike and the teams did to launch the new uniforms. Well, I know the fans are excited, and personally, I, I'm a huge fan of your guys' white jerseys. with The way that the wording kind of flails out at the end and the beginning of the word uh, kind of like wings on wings. I like, uh, and, and, I like the rebel, the, the wings rebel one. I got to get one of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, no matter what, you guys are doing something right. So we appreciate it. We we look forward to seeing what you do on Thursday night, exactly uh, 49 hours from this recording. And Greg, thank you so much for making the time to come on our show and speak to us with your extremely busy schedule these days. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the work you all do in promoting our game and our league.